Welcome to The Winsome Creationist, where we explore God's world using a model-building approach, interact with a gracious tone, and take a firm stand on the literal truth of creation found in God's Word. Join host Steve Schramm and occasional guests as they explore the mysteries and majesties from creation to the flood, Babel to the cross, and everywhere in between. And now, here's your host. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome into another episode of The Winsome Creationist. So excited to be with you this week. Took the week off last week. It was insanely busy. And uh, so I, I do pray that you will excuse me for, uh, for that lapse. But this week, I have something for you that I'm excited about because we sort of teased it at the end of our last episode. And that is, we're going to talk about this strange connection between Genesis 6 and the Christmas story. Genesis 6 and the Christmas story. If you remember last time, we talked about creation and Christmas. And we looked at some of the different ways that the New Testament creates these linkages between the idea of creation in the beginning and the creator becoming a baby, taking on the form of a man at Christmas and working and interacting in the world. And one of the connections that we didn't get quite get to last time, and uh, I kind of counted as a blessing in disguise because I wanted to do a longer episode that maybe uh, did it a little bit more justice, is this issue of Genesis 6 actually connecting in to the story of, of Christmas. Now, I, I want to kind of give a few caveats with this, okay, right from the beginning. All of the material that I'm going to share here is from Dr. Michael Heiser's book uh, called Reversing Herman. It's a fantastic book. Um, if you've never read the work of Dr. Heiser, I really do encourage you to go read it. Um, Dr. Heiser is no young earth creationist. Okay, that much is for certain. He definitely aligns more with like your John Walton and that sort of camp. Uh, at least on some things, when it comes to ancient Near Eastern thought around creation, okay? So I disagree with him there. However, I do think he's right about a lot of the stuff that he talks about in sort of his main subject matter, which is the idea of the divine council worldview. And he spent a lot of time on this, and um, I've interacted with much of his work on this, and I think it's worth uh, checking out. And And let me just... I always said to caveat this, let me just say as well that this is not just something, um, because you may have heard things by now about Dr. Heiser or whatever. You know, this is not just something that, um, and Dr. Heiser is no liberal, by the way, he needs prayer. He's going through a very bad pancreatic cancer right now. He's definitely no liberal. At the same time, I know a lot of people would call him a liberal for certain views that he has. Um, and this view, though, the view of, a of the of the divine council worldview, the sons of God in Genesis six and other things, um, is a very conservative, uh, traditional. Even I would even argue it could be an evangelical uh, view. Um, and look no further than the work of um, Tim Chafee, who is the content manager for the Ark Encounter, works for Answers in Genesis. He has written an entire book about this, not affiliated with Answers in Genesis, but on his own. He's written an entire book about this, five hundred pages plus, called Fallen. And it's a fantastic book you should read. So I just wanted to sort of preface 
this discussion, which I don't feel like I have to do, but I feel like it might be prudent for some of you to understand that what I'm, what I'm getting ready to share with you here might sound a little different than some things that you've ever heard before. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to pull from a bunch of different sources. I just want to kind of lay this out for you. In the, in the description, I'm going to link you to uh, a couple of videos of him discussing this using a you know, presentation software so you can sort of visually see and let him explain it to you at the same time some of what we're talking about. So very much this episode is for the purpose of whetting your appetite and uh, creating these connections. Now, as I was looking at this, actually, a, um, a new acquaintance of mine uh, who's going to be a guest on the podcast here very soon, which I'm very excited about shared on Facebook a video called There's a Dragon in My Nativity. And if you search for that, you, that video pulls up uh, right away um, on YouTube. But also some other videos named the same thing of pastors sort of teaching around this idea come up as well. And so this is going to sort of tie into that. So I'm going to try to link you to as many of these different resources, uh, or at least a few of them, um, in the description uh, below or in the show notes so you can check those out uh, for yourself. Um, this is one perspective on the issue, and uh, others, I'm sure, have written plenty of other perspectives as well. But I just want to sort of whet your appetite with this and let you sort of go down this road and, um, and see what you think. So the connection between Genesis 6 and the Christmas story, let me sort of set this up here for you with an introductory quote from Heiser. Quote, the notion that the birth of Jesus is somehow conceptually and theologically linked to Genesis 6, 1 through 4 and the sin of the watchers in First Enoch, no doubt sounds odd to the modern Christian ear. But instead of focusing on what's familiar to us, the issue must be what was familiar to the Jews of the first century. Their intellectual and theological frame of reference can be quite foreign to our own. The right context for understanding the New Testament isn't our Christian tradition or of any variety of any period. Rather, the context that produced the New Testament must guide us. Close quote. Now, this quote might almost come across, depending on how you're reading it, as maybe even a little condescending. And I'll admit, Heiser's tone can sometimes be that way, and it's not my favorite. I, I prefer a gracious tone in all cases. And um, so I'll just let that be what it is. However, the point he's making is absolutely correct. It's absolutely correct. The Bible was, in fact, written for us, but not necessarily written to us, okay? There are things in the Bible that, and here's, let me, let me actually just put this a different way too. One of my uh, former uh, pastors said it like this, and it makes a lot of sense, is that it can't mean for us what it couldn't mean for them, okay? It can't mean for us what it couldn't mean for them because that would mean that the original audience would have zero hope of understanding what was being directly written to them. And that doesn't mean to, to doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Now you say, well, what about prophecy and things where like there's later revelation and we have the benefit of hindsight and we've seen the cross? Sure, hundred percent. But just because interpreters before the time of Christ, for example, didn't uh, necessarily take the path of interpretation that would lead now to the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy, doesn't mean that it wasn't possible for it to be fulfilled in that way. Okay. What I'm referring to here is you have people who want to say there are helicopters discussed in Revelation. Well, I'm sorry, but it couldn't mean for them what it, what it can't, it can't mean for us what it couldn't mean for them, okay? 
it didn't, you know, locusts are not helicopters. All right, I'm just going to leave that there. We're not getting into eschatology today, okay? Um, right? It's two, it's two different things. So it is important that we understand the original context of the original reader and the original writer. And what you find when you start studying history about the belief on these sorts of topics is you will find that um, the further back you go in Christian history, you find virtually unanimous agreement on some of the kind of things that we're talking about here. And then as the world becomes, I guess the right word to say would be a little bit more westernized, is the more the world is westernized, um, the less these beliefs seem to um, be held popularly. But the more eastern you find people as you go back, and especially those first couple hundred centuries out of the birthing of the church, uh, in all the writings that we can find, we find lots of agreement, virtually unanimous agreement with this sort of mindset. And uh, again, if you're kind of skeptical about that, uh, I would highly suggest you read the book Fallen by Tim Chafee. He has documented this, and it's, um, it's very, very good. So to the subject matter at hand, there's this conceptual and theological link between Genesis 6, 1 to 4, and the sin of the watchers in Enoch. Now, if you never heard that, the, the sin of the watchers, first Enoch, what are even watchers? What does that mean? The brief idea there, and the, the word watcher is actually used in the book of Daniel to, to create that link. The very brief idea there is that the context of the flood in Genesis 6, of course, we know the, the narrative really starts driving when we get to like verse 5, but Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is the backstory for that time period. And Second Temple Jews understood that First Enoch was basically giving the background. It maps onto the same sorts of things that are being discussed in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It's basically referencing the same event uh, from the Jewish perspective. There was also a, Me a Mesopotamian uh, perspective on this, what they called the Apkalus. Okay, the Apkalus story. So the Apkalu and the Watchers, these are all sort of interchangeable terms. And um, for, the, for, the, for the Mesopotamians, this was their culture heroes, okay? This was the, uh, you know, the sons of the gods descending to the earth and this, that, and the other thing. And they viewed it as, very, as a very positive thing. It was the ancient sages, okay? It was very positive. They came down and, and what they did. Well, for Jews, the referencing of this event was actually a very negative thing. For Jews, the sin of the watchers is the reason for the proliferation of sin and, and witchcraft and, and sorcery and all these things, sexualization on the earth. So for an ancient uh, Israelite, what you would have, or for a second temple Jew, what you'd have, if you asked the question, why is the world so sinful? You wouldn't just get Genesis 3. And maybe you've never thought about this, but I challenge you to go to the Old Testament and see just how many references to Genesis 3 you find. Not very many, like two, I think. Okay, the Old Testament hardly ever references Adam. And you think, well, yeah, but they don't reference Genesis 6 very often either. <laughs> they actually do. They do. Um, and maybe we could look at that sometime, but it, it's, not, it's not so obvious because we're not taught to think with that context. But Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 82, Psalm 89, um, it's just, it's all over that you get references back to the story. So to, to make a long story short, an ancient Israelite might answer the question of, well, why is the world so bad with, well, Adam sinned in the garden, and then the watchers descended, 
and uh, taught basically uh, the well, the watchers are responsible for essentially the proliferation of sin uh, upon the earth. And then there's the Babel event as well, right? So they would reference actually three events instead of just the one, uh, three big events of, of sinfulness. And if you read Dr. Mike Kaiser's book on uh, called The Unseen Realm, or uh, if you want one that's a little bit more layman friendly, you could check out his book Supernatural. He talks about that there as well. So that's the backdrop. And, and what Heiser is saying here is there's actually a link between Jesus and this event. Now, there's multiple of these. And in fact, if you, if you read the book Reversing Herman, you'll find these. But specifically, there's a link to back to Genesis 6, 1 to 4, and the uh, birth story of Jesus, the Christmas story. So how are we going to get there? Well, let me just make sort of uh, an overall point, and then I'm going to make um, a, a, a connective tissue, if you will, between them. Okay, overall point is that Genesis, or rather Revelation chapter 12, the context of that chapter seems overwhelmingly to be the birth of Christ, the birth of the Messiah. Okay, that's the idea going on there. Now, uh, some have tried to make it about something else. Some have tried to basically, cre uh, you know, create this sort of pre-creation angelic fall where Satan falls like lightning and a third of the angels with him and this, that, and the other thing. But that's not the context of the passage. The context of the passage is the birth of the Messiah. Okay, that's when this stuff happens. And so Revelation uh, 12 seems to be what we might call astral theology. Uh, potentially astral prophecy, they kind of fall into that into that category. And uh, so what we have is signs in the heavens that map to real events that are going to be happening or have happened on earth. And not only that, but signs that at least potentially literate scholars would have been aware of back in those days. Now, how do we connect that, right? What's, what's the connective tissue? How do we do that? Well, this is one that Heiser says, by the way, that he cannot prove. He cannot necessarily prove uh, this connection. Uh, but if you, if you just listen to it, it's kind of interesting, and I think uh, it's very, very possible. Romans 10. Okay, Romans 10, Paul is discussing, you know, this is the, the popular passage, you know, how can they be saved? How can they come to the Lord if they haven't heard? And how shall they hear? without a preacher. Well, very rarely do people keep reading that passage. They sort of they sort of stop after that realization or that rather that that verse, that passage to make the point of, you know, we need people to be preachers. Every creature a preacher, you know, that 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 sort of thing. And of course that perspective is not necessarily wrong <laughs> except that when you keep reading in the context of the passage Paul actually says, well, but they have heard, right? In other words, you're thinking Paul's point is, oh, well, they haven't heard, so we need preachers. It's not actually Paul's point. Now, that's Paul's point in other places, but not here. Here, in Romans 10, Paul is saying that they actually have heard. And I'm going to read this for you, and we're going to look at this. We're going to look at this, and I think you're going to find this uh, rather interesting. So in Romans 10, 18, Paul says this, uh, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth and their words 
unto the ends of the world. Now, what is he talking about there? Their sound went into all the earth, and their words into the end of the world. What on earth is happening? Well, he is referencing a scripture, a verse of scripture. And specifically, he's quoting the Septuagint here, and he's going back, he's drawing language here, and referencing Psalm 19. So Psalm 19 says this, we're just going to read this for you. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Okay. So that line would come from the Hebrew Masoretic text, and that if, if that's what's being referred to there, it would be referring to the ecliptic. In the Septuagint, it, it sort of says their voice, right? Their voice has gone out through all the earth. Either one really works. It doesn't really matter which one you're thinking of, um, except to say that Paul was, was indeed quoting the Septuagint here, it, it seems. And so he's saying that uh, even though they might say they didn't hear, they should have, okay? All people have either heard about it or they should have, the signs in the heavens have made this uh, very, very clear. And so the core claim of Heiser here when it comes to this stuff, to link these two together is this, quote, I believe that the celestial messaging that Paul had in mind in Romans 10.18 can be found in Revelation 12.1-7. This passage has several items that, if taken at face value, are astronomical signs associated with the birth of the Messiah. Considering the language of Revelation 12, 1 through 7 in this way produces a real-time date for the birth of Jesus, a date that is laden with symbolism that first-century Jews would have understood as connecting the messianic birth to the sin of the watchers, close quote. Whoa, right? I know. Kind of crazy. All right, let me give you something else here, because I want you to understand that when we're talking about this stuff, there is a, a tendency to be very skeptical of, of things like this. And I think part of that is because we're really afraid, and maybe we should be as as Christians of like astrology and things like that. And we, we don't like we don't want to put that sort of thinking on the Jews. You must remember though that the signs in the heavens were a big deal in ancient cultures. Okay, Genesis one, right? Why were they? Why were? They, why was the the sun and the moon created? The greater light and the lesser light. Signs and seasons and days and all of those things. Okay, marks that off. It's not. It's not just marking time. It was a very, very big deal to them. And actually, I, I want to read this to you as well uh, from Heiser here to, to sort of help you understand um, why this is the case and, and that it really was a big deal to them. So per Heiser, in briefest terms, quote here, in briefest terms and with respect to a biblical perspective as opposed to pagan polytheism's conception, astral theology was the idea that the one who made the celestial objects in the heavens, sun, moon, and stars, to be for signs and seasons and to mark time, Genesis 1.14, could use those objects to communicate. There is a good deal of evidence, such as zodiac mosaics and ancient Jewish synagogues, that faithful, theologically conservative Jews believe that divine activity that would have had an impact on earthly events could be discerned in the skies, activity they were careful to attribute to the true God and no other gods. Close quote. So this is not gospel in the stars type of stuff at all. Heiser does not believe in that. It's not, and I don't, it's not gospel in the stars type of stuff. 
but it is, this is a way that ancients believed that gods communicated. And by the way, the ancient Jews believed that the one true God communicated. It has nothing to do with pagan astrology or whatever that we might think of uh, today. It does not have those same connotations, even though some of the language is similar. So I do want you to get that out of your mind as we move forward. Okay, so let's get into some of the specifics here. Again, some of these might be a little bit easier to discern or to understand if you're actually seeing it on screen. And Heiser, who has done all of this work, um, displaying it himself, I, I just want to sketch it out for you here and, and whet your appetite to go check out some of those other things. And you know what? If, if, if you're not, if you're still skeptical of, of all this, then keep listening. Uh, if you're not, you just want to go check it out right now, then permission to leave the podcast right now. Go check that other out because I think it's really cool. Um, I won't do it nearly as much justice as Heiser, but uh, if you want to keep listening, then uh, great. I much appreciate that. And here we go. Okay. So if, if we read Revelation 12, 1 through 7, which let's, let's, let's do that. Uh, because I think it will, uh, again, be sort of helpful for you. Okay. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there, a thousand two hundred and three score days. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought, and his angels, and, and the dragon fought, and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. Okay, so went through verse eight there to sort of wrap that up with a bow and make it make sense. Now, we're not going to talk through all of those things, but there are some characters in the story that we need to discuss the dragon, the woman, the child. Basically, those are the main. Uh, the main sort of ideas there. So let's start with the woman. So the woman seems to fit, and this is pretty uncontroversial, seems to fit both Virgin Israel and obviously the Virgin Mary. Um, she is an astronomical heavenly sign or uh, constellation. So quote, the idea that the woman is a constellation is made plausible when one looks closely at the text. The description that the woman was clothed with the sun is stock astronomical language for the sun being in the midst of a constellation. And by the way, you can see this very clearly in, in what Heiser will show you in that presentation. And it's short, by the way, too, so you should check it out. While the sun is in the woman, the moon is at her feet. For this situation to occur, the constellation of the woman must be, in astronomical language, on the ecliptic, the imaginary line in the sky that the sun and moon follow on their journey through the zodiac constellations. Close quote. I'll remind you. Psalm 19. Their line goes out through all the earth. The ecliptic is talking about the same thing. Paul, I'll remind you, references back to that verse to say that all men have heard, okay? It seems very clear now, this linkage, okay? Uh, it's very, very possible that when Paul is talking about the fact that all men have heard because they can look to the sky and see it, that what is being referenced is exactly what's being discussed here in Revelation chapter 12. So the woman is a constellation. She's got to be on the ecliptic uh, in order for the moon to be at her feet at the same time when she's being clothed with the sun. So the woman is uh, 
you know, sort of a double entendre for Mary and for Israel. Again, that's pretty un- uncontroversial in the scholarship. The child, Revelation 12, 5. I mean, it's totally Jesus. I mean, this is, again, another thing, uncontroversial in the scholarship, right? The child is Jesus. That's who's being talked about here. It's, it's the Messiah. Now, what about the dragon? So the dragon in this case, and Heiser gives some technical reasons inside of the book for why it could be one or the other. There's a, a possibility of two different options here. Either one will work given the location. Um, one is likely more plausible, and I'll just give you what they are. One is either Hydra, the dragon, Hydra, or uh, ancient Scorpio. So ancient Scorpio was actually a, a combination of what we think of today as modern Scorpio and another uh, constellation. And which other one it is is actually slipping my mind at the moment, but it's actually a, you know, it's, it's, it's two different ones. Uh, put together in the ancient mind. And this one seems to be like right under the feet uh, of the woman, whereas the one from uh, Hydra is actually like a little bit off of the ecliptic. So both of them are plausible. Uh, I, you know, Heiser, and I kind of agree based on his description, Heiser thinks the ancient Scorpio uh, is in view because it would also be thought of or referred to as a dragon. Um, so it could be either one of those. So we have the woman identified, the child identified, and then the dragon uh, identified. Okay, now let me give you this. Quote, the status of Regulus in Leo, the star Regulus in Leo, is important because on one of the possible dates for the messianic birth, it came into conjunction with Jupiter as the largest planet. Jupiter was considered the king planet in astrotheological thinking of the first century. As a result, the constellation Leo, Leo the lion, the messianic sign of the lion of Judah to Jews who read the heavens, had two conjoined signs of royal birth with it. So basically, in this window of time, you have this time when Regulus, the king star, and then Jupiter, the king planet, would have been aligned exactly together with all of the other signs being mentioned. The woman being clothed with the sun, the moon at her feet, and the dragon underneath the feet of the woman. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, continuing on. This combination of astronomical signs produces a unique set of circumstances that can only be accounted for by one date. And in point of fact, a 92-minute window on that date. This date, as we'll see momentarily, has dramatic significance in the Jewish calendar. According to these signs in the heavens, the date of Jesus' birth was September 11, 3 BC. Close quote. Okay. September 11, 3 BC. Now, again, this has nothing to do with modern context and connotations of September 11th, as we think about it here in the modern world, especially in America. Now, could eventually we find out that there is something very, very sinister, a very good sinister reason? You know, it's not a good reason, but it's, you know, it's, it's a good reason why it would have happened on that day. Why such evil in the name of people who are used to producing evil against, uh, you know, in the name of, 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 against Christianity, basically, which, again, especially at that time, the U.S. was seen more of a Christian nation. Again, could there be a connection there, spiritual theological significance there? I think it's very possible, although I'm not going to speculate on that. It could be a coincidence. If it's a coincidence, given those dates, it's one heck of a coincidence, okay? And it will be made more of a coincidence here in just a minute. So let me just uh, get to one objection first here, which we're not going to, like, cover this objection here today. Heiser doesn't even cover it in his work. Uh, I do have the paper saved, and I have skimmed through it, and I want to read through it further. He points to a paper arguing this. Um, basically, the biggest objection to this is if Jesus' birthday was actually September 11th, 3 BC, then the uh, traditional accepted date for the death of Herod is going to cause problems for that. Um, his accepted date is in 4 
BC. And so this view uh, of Jesus's birth would actually require Herod's death in 1 BC. And uh, for the purposes of our discussion here, I'll just say that this view is uh, supported. There are arguments supporting this position in the scholarship. And uh, again, I've got the paper saved and uh, maybe I can link you to that as well. Um, but it's not without precedent in the scholarship uh, that, uh, that we could overcome the traditional sort of accepted date for the death of Herod and therefore overcome that objection. Okay, as far as I'm aware, that's the only actual objection uh, standing in the way of, of this view working out. All right, continuing with Heiser, quote, Incredibly, the astronomical reconstruction of the circumstances of Revelation 12, 1 through 7 that produces a birth date for the Messiah of September 11th, 3 BC, was also the beginning of the Jewish New Year in 3 BC, Rosh Hashanah, or Tishri 1, the day of the trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets slash Tishri 1 was also the day that many of the ancient kings and rulers of Judah reckoned as their inauguration day of rule. This procedure was followed consistently in the time of Solomon, Jeremiah, and Ezra. This is a powerful piece of evidence for the astronomical reading of Revelation 12, 1 through 7 as celestial signs of the birth of the Messianic king. Jewish tradition also held that the day of the trumpets commemorated the beginning of the world, the very first day of the human calendar. As Jewish historian Theodore H. Gaster writes, Judaism regards New Year's Day not merely as an anniversary of creation, but more importantly as a renewal of it. This is when the world was born. So here's what we've got so far. Now, I still haven't connected you all the way back to Genesis 6. We're getting there. But what we've got so far is an astronomical sequence that is reflective perfectly of the information we're given in Revelation 12, 1 through 7, which happens to produce an exact birth date and even a specific window of time for the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. It just so happens that the date produced there is also the day of Tishri 1, or the Feast of Trumpets. Okay, Tishri 1 is the old Jewish New Year. Um, again, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But it is the beginning of the Jewish New Year in 3 BC, Rosh Hashanah, Tishri 1, the day of trumpets. And again, many ancient kings and rulers of, of, of Judah were, like that was considered the inauguration day of rule. So the, 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 the divine messianic king ruling from the throne of David was born on the day when kings are inaugurated and rulers are inaugurated. It's pretty hard. Like, there's a, there's a saying in, in the medical field, right? If, if you hear hoofs behind you, hoofbeats behind you, uh, think horse, not zebra. Okay, the point there is that the simplest explanation is oftentimes the one that makes the most sense. So I, I have no doubt that, that you could go and cherry pick little pieces of this and find different pieces in different places that could explain away some of the things here. But the fact that all of this lines up the way that it does, in my mind, it, it would be very strained to, uh, to ignore this, at least. At least to ignore what we're talking about here. Um, it'd be very difficult to do. Okay, continuing on again with Heiser. Quote, the important point for our purposes is that the most ancient Israelite calendar began with Tishri, which fell in a season with a harvest after the rains had produced the fall crop. This month and this harvest, as Gaster noted, were considered a memorial of creation. Why? The answer is simple. Genesis has Adam and Eve placed in a lush garden. Eden, because of the availability of food for Adam and Eve, 
the creation must have begun in the harvest season. And so the earliest Hebrew calendar began the year in the harvest season, hence the first month, Tishri, fell in the harvest season. This logic produces the idea that the Israelite New Year signaled a renewal of creation. So the Israelite New Year signals a renewal, a renewal of creation. This event, if all this is true and all this works out, happened on the day when creation was renewed. There's your creation and Christmas link. The renewal of creation began on the day of Christmas, the day of the birth of the Messiah. Continuing with Heiser, quote, barely over a year after the flood began. Now we're back to Genesis, okay? Barely over a year after the flood began, Noah and his family left the ark in the second month of the year. Follow this. Noah had turned 601 by the time he left the ark. Why is this noteworthy? Because Jewish tradition took this chronology to mean that Noah's birthday was Tishri 1. This is the same day as the birth of the Messiah Jesus, if we take Revelation 12 as indicating the celestial signs present at his birth. A Messiah born on Tishri 1 would inevitably have created mental and theological associations between Noah and Jesus. Close quote. So Jesus is the new Noah in the Christmas story. There's the connection to the flood. Now listen to this. Quote, the theological messaging is startling. A Messiah whose birth on Tishri 1 was followed in the next month by the rising of the Pleiades, Orion would have signaled the arrival of Yahweh's shepherd king. The following month, the second month of the year, when Noah and his family emerged from the ark, marked the judgment of God upon the Nephilim. But we know from Genesis 4 and other passages that the flood wasn't the permanent cure for the Nephilim and the effect of the sin of the watchers in human history. What was needed was a new Noah. And so on Tishri 1, the traditional birthday of Noah, the heavens telegraph the identity of the better Noah, Jesus of Nazareth, born as he was from Noah's own bloodline. See Luke 3.36. The permanent reversal of the ancient pact sealed on Mount Hermon had begun. Close quote. Listen, you got to read Reversing Hermon because let me just give you a little bit of a preframe here. Okay. So there are numerous connections all throughout the New Testament that point back to these. Okay, what, what, her, what, what, what Heiser's point with, with this book specifically, all told, is, is the idea that the entrance of Jesus into the world is the reversal of the sin of the watchers, okay? They descended on Mount Hermon. That's why it's called Reversing Hermon, okay? Notice, this is relatively uncontroversial, okay, in um, scholarship, although some of it might be a little obscure, a little bit harder to come across because you don't typically hear this stuff on Sunday morning, right? But think about this. Okay, we have now how Jesus is the new Noah. These events, I think, pretty clearly link back the uh, renewal of creation in the birth of the Messiah to the renewal of creation after the flood. I think that link between Jesus and Noah is well established. Okay, well, uh, and by the way, Jesus is also connected with Noah and Jude and First Peter. Anyway, that's, that's a different rabbit trail for a different day. But those connections between Jesus as, as being sort of the new Noah um, are, are very clear. Okay, well, we know also that Jesus is the new Adam, right? This is, this is very transparent in the text. Romans 10, um, Romans, uh, well, all over Romans, but, 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 you know, Romans 5, rather. You know, Paul is, is creating these connections back um, uh, between uh, Jesus and Adam. Uh, of course, 1 Corinthians 15 is another place where this is going on. Uh, Jesus is the new Adam, the second Adam. Okay, and then, so we have two out of three so far of the events covered. Remember I told you, an ancient Jew, an ancient Israelite rather, would look at the world and say, yeah, the world is, is pretty bad off because of three things. The sin of Adam, 
the sin of the watchers, and then the sin at the Tower of Babel. Those are the three sort of events that they would point to that are responsible for the entrance and pro- proliferation of sin across the, uh, across the planet and in the universe, frankly. Well, what about the Babel event then? Well, just to kind of preframe you a little bit here, uh, another thing that you can look at is the idea that Pentecost was the reversal of the judgment at Babel. You see, at Babel, according to Deuteronomy 32, again, we can, you, can, you can look at some other resources to, to sort of get all this. If you go to steveshram.com slash DCW, I've written some on this, so you can sort of make these connections as well. But if you look at it, it seems as though the event at Pentecost was a reversal because you have basically the same nations uh, mentioned of the judgment at Babel. The judgment of Babel was, of course, the scattering of the nations, but it was more than that. It was actually the allotment, if you will, of those nations to other gods. Okay, Basically, Yahweh was denouncing those nations, and he created for himself a new nation through Abraham, the people of Israel, the Jews. Okay, But that was after the disinheritance, that's the language Deuteronomy 32 uses, of the other nations that were allotted to the sons of God. Uh, And this happened in the table of nations. We can see that in Genesis 10, Genesis 11. All through there. So, at Pentecost, okay, when the Spirit descends, we see the reversal of that. Why? What's happening there? Well, at Pentecost, what we have is the Jews, the the or the the new believers rather, who were from scattered from all over the different parts of of the ancient world, were in one place, and they heard the message of the gospel and received the Spirit in their own unique language in that time and place. And then went back with the message of Jesus to their own nations in reversal of the disinheritance of those very nations all the way back in Genesis at the Tower of Babel. So the New Testament creates these connections, and there's lots of different pieces of evidence just like this in the Reversing Herman book, but it takes many different paths and many different trajectories to show how Jesus was the reversal of uh, basically the sin of Adam, the sin of the Watchers, uh, and even the sin at Babel as well, even though it really focuses in on that second one. Okay, I hope this has been helpful. A little bit different, but I think a very, very clear linkage between creation and Christmas. And um, I hope it intrigued you and uh, was was interesting. All right, thank you again for being a listener to the Winsome Creationist. Uh, we've got some great topics and some great interviews and, and things coming up. Very, very excited about them. And I hope to see you on the next one. Bye-bye. <laughs>